But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to CCC. Uh, really glad that you're here. Welcome those of you over in East Hall and those of you tuning in uh, welcome. All right, we are uh, two days away from the election, which means that we are being inundated by political ads. And let me just uh, step away right now and remind you, plead with you, that whatever happens on Tuesday, uh, let's be the group of people that has a hope in something greater, someone greater than politics for our world. All right, let's be that group. Just a reminder. All right, but we are uh, seeing all kinds of political ads, and the most convincing political ads to me are the, the ones that people say, I have been a lifelong Democrat, and now I'm going to vote Republican, or I have been a lifelong Republican, and now I'm going to vote Democrat. And the reason those are so convincing is because what they're saying is, I have been this way my entire life, but something has happened that is so powerful that I am changing completely. It's a conversion of sorts. No one ever uh, does a political ad where somebody says, I've moved a little further left, but I'm still a Republican. 
or I've moved a little further right, but I'm still a Democrat. Because everyone knows the power is really in conversion. And there is no more famous story of conversion than the one that was just read to you, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We've been looking at the book of Acts and talking about how Christianity swept across the Roman Empire. And Christianity has always spread through conversion. And I tell you that because I want you to to know that Christianity has never been a set of ethics or a set of teaching that if you follow that teaching, then you become a better person. That's not Christianity. That's like saying, move a little further left or a little further right. Christianity, Christianity has always been conversion. And by that, I mean a total transformation. You quit trusting in what you were trusting in and trust something completely different. And what happens is that everything about you changes. You are reimagined because of Jesus. And that's what happens to Paul. Because we had the the passage that was read is Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 8, the heading on my Bible says, Saul ravages the church. Now, throughout this message, I'm going to refer to Paul as Paul sometimes and Saul sometimes. Saul was his name before conversion. Paul was his name afterwards. Anytime I use that, I'm talking about the same person. But Paul was ravaging the church which means that he was grabbing people who were followers of Jesus, arresting them, beating them, torturing them, sometimes killing them. He was angry, abusive, hateful, violent. And by the time he pens the letter to the Philippians, he writes, I have learned the secret of being content. What happened? Paul was converted. Right? We have been using four words as we talk about our reimagined vision and four shapes that we feel capture the human predicament. The four shapes are square, triangle, triangle, square. The four words are ought, is, hope, and ideal. And what we mean by capturing the human predicament is that virtually everyone knows that there is a way the world ought to be. There is a way that each of us ought to be. But what is, what exists right now, is not what ought to be. The world is not what it ought to be. We are not what we ought to be. And then there's hope. Every human being has a hope that they are hoping in that will actually do something to make us back to where we were intended to be. For some people, it's Tuesday. They're saying if only the right people could get in office, if only the right party would be in charge, then our country would be what it should be, could be, ought to be. When people are converted to Christianity, what happens is their hope, whatever they were hoping in, is replaced by Jesus, and that's what happens to Paul. And in order for that to happen, there are three things I'm going to pull out of Paul's conversion that have to happen in anyone's conversion. And this will be good for you to know so you can know whether you are truly converted. And it will also help, if you are truly converted, help you know how to help someone else to convert to Jesus. All right? The three things that are involved are coming into contact with the real God, the living Jesus, and a life-changing uh, relationship. The real God, living Jesus, a life-changing relationship. First, the real God. 
Paul believed that he knew what God was like, which is why Christians bugged him so much, because when Christians talked about Jesus being God, that made no sense to Paul, and that's what made him so angry. See, Paul had this idea of what God was like, but when God showed up, he was completely different than what Paul had in his mind. And that's true of everyone pre-conversion. If you are here or you're watching this and you are not a Christian, then what comes into your mind when you think about God probably will have to change if you're ever going to meet the real God. And there are basically two ways, I think, that people get misinformation about God or a misconception about God. There are probably more. Let me give you two. One is what you tell yourself about God, and the other is what other people tell you about God. First, let me talk about what you tell yourself about God. I call this the Chipotle God, (laughs) because uh, people like to have a God that matches up with their own taste and sensibilities. I don't know if you've ordered from Chipotle online lately. It is a remarkable experience. It's wonderful. What happens is you get on a screen and it'll ask whether you want a bowl or a burrito. You get to just click on that. Then all the ingredients show up and you click on an ingredient. But it doesn't just say that you get that ingredient. It lets you then choose whether you want the normal amount of that ingredient or an extra amount of that ingredient or a light amount of that ingredient. It's awesome. Like I pick on brown rice, and then it says, do I, do I want extra brown rice? Do I want just the normal amount of brown, brown rice, or do I want light brown rice, right? That's what people do with God. People kind of look at a menu, and they think, you know what? I want a God that is heavy on love, heavy on acceptance, light on judgment, light on demands, uh, no hell, thank you very much. Uh, I want the normal amount of freedom, but I like a smidge of intervention when I need him to intervene, and I want him to intervene the way I want him to intervene. And then we press send. And when God shows up for real, it seems like somebody got our order completely wrong. And that's what happens to Paul. Paul thinks he knows what God is like. He's got this God in his head. Then the real God shows up, and it completely seems like The order was wrong, and Paul eventually is glad because a designer God, a God that you make up that matches your own sensibilities, your own taste, will never transform you, will never actually change you, cannot convert you, because that God will never disagree with you. In fact, if you have an idea of God in your head and God is never challenging you, never saying that you are wrong, never convicting you, then you probably don't have the real God in your head. So that's one way we get misinformation. The other way is that people tell us about God. And that happens usually in the church you grew up in or the family that you grew up in, and they tell you something about God. And this is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. If uh, a designer God is like a teddy bear that gives you comfort when things are going well but can't actually really change you, then the God that other people tell you about sometimes is like a monster-in-the-closet God. Because I'll talk to people and I'll say, uh, you don't believe in God, why not? And they'll say, because I I can't believe in a God that's so angry and vindictive and judgmental and and cruel. And I'll say, yeah, I I get that. I don't believe in that God either. If you're ever going to be converted, then you have to meet the real God as he reveals himself in the Bible. 
And what you find about the God of the Bible is that he's not like a teddy bear and he's not like a monster in the closet. There are some things that you'll read about when you talk, when you look at the Bible, that you'll read about God that'll be so amazing, so good, so pure, so loving, so compassionate, it will melt your heart. And there are other passages where you'll read it and you'll realize that God is so holy and so righteous that he, if you ever came into his presence, that he might melt your face like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because God is real. And unless you have a God that is like that, that is real the way he reveals himself in the Bible, you don't have a real God. And so that's the first thing. Is that if you are going to ever be converted, you have to get rid of the God that you have made up or the God that other people have told you about and get to know the real God. That's what happens to Paul. The second thing is the living Jesus. So Paul is walking on his way to Damascus, and he's going there to arrest Christians, to beat them, to, uh, to torture them, some, maybe to kill them. And then all of a sudden, he gets knocked down on the ground, and uh, this brilliant bright light blinds him, and he gets the idea that God might be trying to tell him something. And a voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? There's a lot that I want to say about that one sentence. And the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus knows his name. This isn't like the Wizard of Oz with a lot of smoke and a lot of thunder and just an angry God. This is somebody who shows up and says, I call you by name. I know who you are. And that means if you are here and you are not a Christian, or you're watching and you are not a Christian, Jesus knows your name. And that is amazing. But not only does Jesus know Saul's name, Jesus knows what Saul has done. He knows the worst thing about Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knows that Saul has been grabbing innocent people and torturing them, throwing them into prison, beating them, many times killing them. And still, Jesus comes for him. That means no matter what you have ever done, and there are people that I talk to that seem, feel like they've done things that God could never, ever forgive. Uh, and sometimes it's soldiers who have done things in combat that they just cannot get out of their head. Sometimes it's women who have had abortions or something like that, and they cannot forgive themselves. And I want you to know, if that's you, then uh, because of this passage, what God is trying to tell you is that no one is beyond the reach of the love of God. If not Saul, then certainly not you. And so Saul hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't even know who's speaking. And so he asks him, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. That's like the, the mic drop moment. You can almost feel the bomb going off in Paul's head. That Jesus says, I am alive. The passage of scripture tells us that Paul was blind and he didn't eat or drink for three days. You know what he thought about for those three days? He thought about that voice and that sentence where Jesus says, I am Jesus. 
Because if Jesus is alive, then Paul was saying, what does that mean? And this is the secret. This is kind of the moment of conversion. Paul will write about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is the secret. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul said was, if Jesus is alive, then that changes everything. It even changes me. And this is where I hope this is helpful, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. Because Paul, when Jesus says, I am Jesus, there was a lot of things that Paul still didn't understand about Christianity. There were a lot of things, a lot of things that he would have objections to. He had no category for a triune God. He had been taught his whole life that God is one. He had never, ever considered that God is one in three persons. Paul had no category for a Messiah who would die on a cross. But Paul didn't have to have all the answers. Jesus didn't appear to Paul and say this, Paul, let me just go through all your objections and then maybe you can believe in me. All Jesus said was, Paul, I'm alive. And I tell you that because uh, I talk to people who have objections for Christianity and uh, they'll say, you know what? I can't become a Christian because I don't understand why there's so much violence in the Old Testament. Or I can't become a Christian because, you know, I, I've, I've looked at all the things that Christianity, Christians have done throughout the ages from the Crusades and all of that. I can't become a Christian because I've known too many hypocrites who are, who are Christians. And they're all good objections. But anytime someone brings an objection like that to me, I always end up at the resurrection. Because I always say to them, tell me what you believe about the resurrection. Have you ever studied it? Have you ever looked at the evidence? Have you ever considered? Because if Jesus is alive, then all your other objections are just details. That's what I do with my doubts. I mean, there are, in my Bible, there are all kinds of question marks I have in different parts of the Bible where I'm going, man, I don't understand this. But if I doubt enough to think, I wonder if this is all true, I always go back to the resurrection. Because if Jesus is alive, everything else is detail. Everything else will be worked out over time. I'll never forget what Abdu Murray said when he was here visiting with us. Abdu Murray uh, was a man who was trained as an attorney and he grew up as a Muslim. And uh, then he started to research Christianity. And this is what he said. He said it almost flippantly. He said, if you want to know whether the resurrection really happened or not, it'll take you about two weeks, if you're serious, to look at the evidence and determine that there's every indication in the world that Jesus resurrected. But he said, the hard part is this, is believing in your heart what you know to be true in your head. That's the hard part. The hard part is not finding out whether the resurrection really happened or not. That, he said, was easy. 
but the hard part was believing in your heart what you know to be true in your head. That's the second thing that must happen, right? That you have to come to the place where you realize that Jesus is alive. And if you do, then all your other objections will just become details. The third thing is this life-changing relationship. So Paul hears a voice, and the voice says, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that had to be kind of confusing to Paul because he was thinking, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting people who believe in you. But that's not what Jesus said. Why did Jesus put it like this? Jesus was saying that he has such an intimate relationship with his followers. If you are his follower, he has such an intimate relationship with you. There is such solidarity between you and him that what you experience, he experiences. This became something that that Paul could never quite shake. It, It plays itself out in every epistle that he writes. Paul just could not get over this. Let me give you two great truths, two, like two great diamonds about what this means. If we really do have a solidarity with Jesus, then that means that what is true of Jesus is true of you. What is true of Jesus is true of you. And this is the very core of Christianity, that Christianity is not achieved by something that you do. It's received because Jesus has done it for you. Paul in Romans chapter 6 will say, don't you know that when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried with him. Ephesians 2, he'll say, when Jesus rose, you rose with him. When Jesus was seated on the throne of God, you were seated with him. What Paul is saying is what is true about Jesus is true about you. We're going to have baptism at the end of this service. When people get into this water, that's why, what baptism is all about. What they're saying is when, they, when we put them underneath the water, they're saying, I identify with Jesus. When Jesus died, I died. When Jesus resurrected, then I resurrected to new life. What is true of Jesus is true of you. Let me tell you how that can help you. The deeper that goes in you, the more you understand what is true of Jesus is true of you, the fewer insecurities you will have that plague other people the less it will bother you when someone disrespects you, the less it will bother you when people don't see you the way you want them to see you, the less it will bother you when you're snubbed or passed over or you're not as successful as you want to be. Because you will realize that if what is true of Jesus is true of you, then all of his riches are your riches. That when he is seated on his throne, you are seated on the throne, that you are honored by the king himself. And if you are honored by the king himself, then what does it matter what other people think of you? But the other thing, if we are really one with Jesus, it not only means that what is true of Jesus is true of you, it means whatever you feel, he feels. And that has to do with the problem of suffering and pain. No other religion in the world No other worldview even remotely suggests that God is so concerned about your pain that what you feel, he feels, that when you weep, he weeps. When you hurt, he hurts. Listen, COVID has been hard. It's been hard on everyone. Part of it is because we were made for relationships. Air hugs don't work, right? 
And it's different to have a Zoom call than to have dinner with close friends. And the reason is because we long for intimacy. In the midst of that, Jesus comes and he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. COVID can't keep me from you. What is true of me is true of you. Rejoice. What you feel, I feel. Be comforted. Listen, the world desperately needs to change. You know that. I know that. We all know that Tuesday is not going to do it. The way the world changed in the first century is the way it needs to change now. We need to have people come into contact with the real God, realize that Jesus is alive, and then enter into this life-changing relationship, intimate relationship with Jesus himself. Listen, and the, the way that people responded when they were converted was always the same. They got baptized. And that's why we're going to do that at the end of this service. We're going to baptize people. The only other thing I want to point out, is this struck me uh, yesterday, is that uh, the other character in this story is a guy named Ananias. You know, I always wonder in different stories like this, I wonder, why is Ananias even in this story? Because Jesus does all the heavy lifting with Paul, right? He's the one who appears. He's the one who blinds him. He's the one who speaks to him. Paul was going to get converted with or without Ananias. So why Ananias? And I think uh, God wanted Ananias involved so that Ananias would know what God could do with anybody. Because Ananias knew enough about Paul that he was saying, God, I don't know if you realize what kind of person this is. And God was saying, Ananias, I know exactly what kind of person this is. And after I get through with you and him, then you will never look at another person in the world and think that they are beyond my ability to transform and change them. That means that the hardest person in your family is not beyond being transformed by Jesus. The most dislikable person at work the toughest person in your neighborhood or at school, you have never seen a person in this world that Jesus cannot transform. And we are praying through Reimagine that 10,000 people in this area are transformed by Jesus, are converted, are reimagined, that they come to know the real God, the living Jesus, and are changed by this relationship, this intimate relationship with him. And when that happens, then the world will be changed. Let's pray for that. Would you pray with, us, with me now? Lord Jesus, I come to you and I am so, so grateful. Uh, early this morning, I was struck that you have created all things and now you have come to redeem all things. And you call us each by name. There's not a single person here that you do not know. And you know everything we have done, and still you come for us. Lord, I pray that every person here would understand your love, your grace in such a way that they would be absolutely changed, that they would realize that we would all realize that what is true of you is true of us, and that what we feel, you feel. Thanks for being such a wonderful Savior. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.